we don't have much people studying uh, vitamins and trace elements right now. M maybe for uh, trace elements, zinc, copper, selenium, uh, a little bit with uh, iron. Uh, we still have a fair amount of people, but vitamins, there, there is none or almost nobody who working on that. Uh, I could say may maybe a handful of uh, researchers working on that. A whole new era of communication in the Canadian swine industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the Canadian and global swine industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Swine It Podcast Show Canada is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like Swine Veterinary Partners comprises four well-established clinics across Canada. Precision Veterinary Services, Premier SHP, Demeter Veterinary Services, and Demeter Services Veterinaries. Our nutrition group includes four companies, Nutrition Athena, Shakespeare Mill, Farmhouse, and Nutrition Partners, which serve swine producers all across Canada. Welcome to the Swine It Podcast Show Canada, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the Canadian and global swine industry. Hello, everyone. I'm Dan Columbus, your host for today's Swine It Canada podcast. With me today, I have Dr. Daniel Dalto, who is a research scientist at the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada Sherbrooke Research and Development Centre. Ah, oh, what a mouthful. Uh, how are you today, Daniel? <laughs> I'm very good. And you, Dan? I'm excellent. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us today. I think it'll be an interesting uh, topic. Um, so, Daniel, just because some of our audience may not be familiar with you and the research that you're doing... Uh, before we start talking about uh, our, our topic today, do you want to maybe introduce yourself a little bit first, like where where you've been and, and how you got to where you are? Sure. Uh, first of all, it's a pleasure to to be here and to talk to you. It's uh, I'm sure it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be fun. So uh, as Dan uh, just uh, said, well, my name is Daniel Bueno Dalto. I'm a veterinarian from uh, Brazil. And uh, I did my master uh, and my PhD uh, in Brazil as well. At uh, well, if I if I try to translate it uh, literally, it's uh, Londrina State University uh, in Brazil. Uh, I did my master in uh, an area different from the one I'm currently working. I was uh, studying uh, intestinal health uh, back back there. But when I once I started my PhD, uh, I was not uh, studying uh, vitamins and minerals as uh, the, the area that I'm cur currently uh, working on. Uh, I was once again uh, working on uh, intestinal health. But I was uh, invited to to come to Canada back in 2011. Uh, I was invited by Dr. Jacques Mart here from Agriculture Canada uh, to do part of my PhD here with him in his lab. And it was a pretty new area of research to me that was uh, vitamins and trace minerals to, to, to pigs in pigs' uh, nutrition. And uh, well, I decided to, to take this, uh, this, uh, this challenge. It was uh, very new to me. I, I have never worked with uh, these uh, topics before, but I decided to come for the experience of uh, living uh, abroad and having this, uh, this more, uh, 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 how can I say that? Uh, a broad area of, of knowledge as well as as well in uh, swine nutrition. So I came to Canada back in 2011 and I did this uh, uh, animal trial uh, here at uh, the Sherbrooke Research and Development Center. 
Uh, and in 2015, I finished my PhD and I was offered a postdoc position. Uh, and I did this postdoc uh, from 2015 to 2020 when I was uh, fortunate enough uh, to, to secure the position that I uh, currently have as the uh, lead scientist here for the uh, um, Swine Nutrition uh, Lab at the Sherbrooke Research and Development Center, uh, focusing on uh, the study of trace minerals and vitamins in swine nutrition. Okay, great. Uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to talk about today's topic because I, I feel like trace minerals and vitamins is something that generally gets overlooked in the in the field of swine nutrition. <laughs> That's because uh, a lack of interest or it's just the, the difficulty potentially in, in doing some of this work. So I think it, it'll be interesting. I, I would say it it may be uh, both uh, both of your uh, your uh, <laughs> points uh, because uh, if we go back in time. I would say back in 1920, about uh, when people started really looking into uh, vitamins and trace minerals, uh, what they uh, discovered back there is that uh, we needed these uh, nutrients to avoid uh, deficiency in, uh, in, in pigs and other species. However, once these deficiencies were uh, completely or mostly, uh, uh, well, mostly disappeared from animal production, uh, of course, uh, we tried to uh, start using higher levels of these vitamins and trace minerals uh, to improve performance, for example. But when we use uh, vitamins, especially for minerals, we have some exceptions, for, for example, zinc and copper, but for uh, most of the other uh, minerals and especially for vitamins, when you increase levels in the diet, you won't see a, a great improvement in performance. That's not what vitamins and trace minerals, most of them uh, do. Uh, these elements, they work mostly on uh, health aspects. So it improves the, the metabolic health. That's like uh, the, the way I like to, to call it. It's the metabolic health. We work on immune system. Immune system. We work on antioxidant system. Uh, we can uh, uh, modify or modulate uh, microbiota. But growth performance, that's not the focus. But, but back there, uh, that was the focus. So once they realized that uh, we were not able to, to improve growth performance with these nutrients, I think uh, the scientists lost uh, the interest in studying this, uh, these nutrients. So we don't have much people studying uh, vitamins and trace elements right now. M maybe for uh, trace elements, zinc, copper, selenium, uh, a little bit with uh, iron, uh, we still have a fair amount of people, but vitamins, there, there is none or almost nobody who working on that. Uh, I could say may, maybe a handful of uh, researchers working on that. Of course, there are uh, uh, difficulties, uh, analytical difficulties, uh, and things that in, in the uh, trials there we have to, to take care of a, a special uh, kind of uh, sampling tubes, and the timing between sampling and uh, uh, the processing of samples, there are a lot of particularities that we have to take, our, take care of. But maybe these are still a, a little hard to, 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 to work on because we don't have much uh, improvements in terms of uh, uh, the, the study or the understanding of this, these elements uh, right now. Mm -hmm. 
hopefully with more more interest in it then we start to, to develop those a little bit better it's interesting you talk about the you know the, the focus on growth is what basically kind of you know led to uh, a limitation in this type of research because we're seeing that in other nutrients as well right we're uh, with amino acids, it's like we're seeing that, you know, they have benefits beyond just growth. But if you just measure growth performance, you don't see anything and you just, you think that there, that there's there's no point. So it's interesting just to see that um, it's it, in multiple areas, but then this focus on health that's come out in the, in the last couple of years has really started to, to show more of what, you know, nutrition can do and, and what other nutrients can do. Yeah, and uh, they study with vitamins, for example, uh, you mentioned uh, amino acids. Well, the study of uh, vitamins, we can do a lot of stuff uh, uh, playing with amino acids as well because uh, many vitamins, for example, vitamin B6, it has actions uh, in the metabolism of a lot of uh, proteins and amino acids. So we can try to improve the uh, efficiency of uh, utilization of other uh, nutrients by studying or using uh, different vitamins, for example. Yeah. So I know you, you've developed work in, in kind of three main areas and, and your research is focused on, on kind of these, these areas, one being reproductive biology, pre and post weaning metabolism and, and, and sustainability. So I think, you know, We'll, we'll just work through through those three areas and kind of the, your major findings and kind of and, and thoughts of those. So uh, we'll, we'll start with reproductive biology, right? So so how about you just discuss maybe some of the, the stuff that you've done in that area? Yeah, well, uh, I, st- I started studying at this area uh, back in my PhD uh, when I was uh, working with the gestating cells. Uh, we were uh, testing uh, different sources and uh, levels of selenium uh, interacting with uh, vitamin B6 uh, in the diet of the staging cells, uh, trying to um, evaluate if these uh, nutrients could have any kind of impact in terms of uh, cells reproduction, uh, reproductive performance, but also or especially on uh, embryos development. Uh, because as selenium has uh, antioxidant uh, effects, and that are very interesting. Uh, we believed that we believed at that time uh, that uh, the ovulation process that is known to produce a lot of uh, of, of free uh, radicals uh, that we call RLS reactive, reactive oxygen species. So uh, we know that ovulation produces a lot of ROS. But uh, as it's a local production, we were not sure if it would have a, a systemic uh, impact in the in the cell. And we started evaluating this aspect. So we were trying to prove uh, that the ovulation or the periestrous period would be an interesting uh, uh, an experimental uh, uh, model for oxidative stress. And uh, our results showed that although this is a local process, uh, the antioxidant stress is a systemic uh, has a systemic impact in the cell. So, uh, with this knowledge, we started using uh, selenium uh, with its antioxidant uh, effects to try to reduce this uh, systemic uh, uh, oxidative stress uh, that the, the, the cell will uh, go through during the ovulatory process. And in our first uh, study, we were able to show that uh, we are indeed able to reduce the oxidative stress, the systemic, uh, systemic oxidative stress, 
and also uh, improve some uh, parameters related to uh, not only embryo development, but also uh, litter size. So we were able to increase the number of, uh, 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 how can I say that in English, uh, yellow uh, corpse or uh, hemorrhagic corpse that will be the corpus luteum uh, some uh, days later. So it's an indication that we had more embryos or more uh, follicles that were ovulated uh, from that cell, uh, uh, and we are also able to show uh, an increase in the peak of LH of luteinizing hormone in the cells. Once again, showing that the cell was producing uh, more of this uh, hormone that is so important for ovulation. Uh, in a second study, uh, going uh, a little further, uh, instead of studying uh, ovulation itself, we went to the uh, five days embryo and also to the thirty days. Uh, 30-day embryo, and we were able to show that uh, at five days of gestation, uh, the combination of selenium, uh, organic selenium actually, and uh, vitamin B6 uh, improved or increased uh, the number of uh, more mature embryos at five days of gestation, and that uh, in the absence of uh, degenerated embryos that were uh, much higher in the inorganic selenium uh, treatment and also in the control treatment. Between control and uh, the inorganic one, we didn't have any uh, difference. But organic selenium improved a lot the the development and the quality of these uh, embryos. And these results uh, were uh, uh, reproduced at 30 days of of gestation, uh, where these embryos were uh, heavier than the the ones in the other uh, two treatments. Uh, But uh, we we were... uh, 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 not able to increase the amount of uh, antioxidants in the embryo, so uh, we are we were not uh, understanding why uh, we feed animals with uh, selenium compared, for example, to the control diet. We can enrich these animals, uh, these embryos, with selenium. So selenium is being transferred to the embryo, but there is no change in terms of the antioxidant uh, capacity of these embryos, at least in terms of selenium-dependent antioxidants. So uh, by going a little further in these studies, we we, uh, found out that part of the metabolic pathway that goes from organic selenium or selenomethionine to the synthesis of seleno, uh, seleno, uh, enzymes, uh, this metabolic pathway is not uh, complete. It's, it's not mature enough in the uh, porcine embryo. Actually, this metabolic pathway will be complete some weeks after uh, birth. So uh, even uh, by the end of uh, gestation, uh, there is nothing uh, happening in terms of uh, selenoenzymes being produced in the embryo from selenomethionine. So what it means is that uh, the embryo receives or uh, gets selenium from its mother, but it doesn't come, uh, uh, but it's, how can I say that? He's receiving selenium as organic selenium because whatever we feed the cell, if if it's organic selenium or inorganic selenium, this molecule will bind any kind of organic matter, uh, whatever, if it's amino acids or other enzymes within the, 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 the body of the mother. And this organic uh, uh, molecule will be transferred to the embryo. 
But as we can have a greater transfer of organic selenium, for example, selenomethionine, that will enrich the embryo, but we are not able to synthesize enzymes, it leads us to think that some other kind of some other uh, um, complexes uh, between selenium and I don't know which other uh, molecule would also be transferred to the embryo in a more uh, metabolized way, closer to what is needed to synthesize selen selenoenzymes. So by the end of the day, what matters if we want to uh, improve embryos' antioxidant capacity, it's not the source of selenium that we are feeding the mother, but the amount of selenium that we are feeding the mother. We have to improve as much as possible uh, selenium concentration in the cells, so we will transfer these seleno, uh, 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 selenoproteins or uh, uh, these proteins that are binding selenium in some way that will be transferred to, to, to the embryo. But we still don't know what is the effect of this kind of supplementation when, uh, uh, well, uh, at, at birth, we don't know if these differences, these significant differences that we uh, were able to create between organic selenium-treated cells and control or inorganic selenium-treated cells, we don't know if these differences will uh, remain uh, significant until a uh, ferroin, for example. So this would be something uh, that we would that we are interested in in, in study. Yeah, I was going to ask if if the development of those systems happens after birth and you have these enriched uh, embryos, right? Like, does, does that help with that that development after? But it it sounds like that's something to to come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's some something to come, and I'm I'm trying to 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 work on that. But one other interesting aspect is that if if we consider the anti antioxidant system, we have uh, at a first step in the system we have SOD superoxide dismutase. A second step will be the metabolism uh, by uh, glutathione peroxidase that is selenodependent. And then we have kind of uh, uh, complementary systems, for example, catalase and uh, and others. So if we are not able to improve uh, um, glutathione peroxidase levels in the embryo because of these uh, particular aspects of selenium, maybe we can work with SOD. And SOD, uh, it's dependent on zinc, copper, and manganese. So maybe the supplementation of this one or the three of them, uh, the three of these uh, trace minerals in, uh, in cells during the beginning of gestation or even before uh, working on, uh, once again, ovulation, uh, it may be a, a very interesting approach that, that should be uh, further uh, studied. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned that it's not the, the source of, of selenium, it's the amount that you feed the cells, but you saw a difference between the organic and the inorganic selenium. So what, like, what, what is, um, I, I, I guess, what is, doesn't that indicate that source would be, be important as well? I would say that uh, we have to, to, to consider what is the objective of the supplementation, because as I said, uh, it's not the source of selenium when we think about embryo antioxidant system. But if we think on the whole system, mother and embryo, everybody together, uh, organic selenium, selenium seems to be uh, more interesting because it has two, uh, two uh, pathways uh, during its metabolism. 
it can go to the deposition in tissues, for example, uh, in, in, in proteins, and it can go to the synthesis of antioxidants, uh, antioxidant enzymes. So what is interesting about organic selenium is that the difference between these uh, two metabolic pathways, uh, how the, the metabolism will decide when selenium goes to uh, protein deposition or when it goes to antioxidant uh, enzymes synthesis, uh, it's uh, regulated by the level of uh, oxidative stress. So it's uh, I, uh, I say it's interesting because in inorganic uh, selenium-treated animals, basically all selenium will go to the synthesis of selenoenzymes, whatever if it, if the animal needs it or not. So we can say it's a little, it's kind of uh, wasting a little bit of of the selenium because you don't need antioxidants and you are producing it a lot. But with organic selenium, it will be produced when the animal needs it. So it's like a, a feedback. Uh, uh, a feedback approach where when levels of anti uh, oxidative stress increase the level of uh, uh, selenoenzymes will increase as well when you feed uh, organic selenium if you don't have oxidative stress or a basal level of oxidative stress this selenium will be uh, directed to the to the deposition into proteins and that's what we observed with our uh, results, uh, whatever if it's on uh, the activity of uh, these uh, antioxidant uh, enzymes or in the uh, gene expression of these uh, particular uh, genes. So uh, that's the difference. When you, you talk about uh, cells, organic selenium is very interesting. When you talk about embryo, we have, well, embryo antioxidant system, there's the, the, the selenium source is not that interesting, but when you talk about embryo development, it was very interesting. So overall, I would say that organic selenium, it, it, it's a, a better choice. Okay. Um, so you, you've also done some work with, with uh, trace elements in litter homogeneity. So what, what have you found with that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, actually, the studies that we we've done well for for uh, Biggs homogeneity, it's uh, there was with selenium as well, uh, but instead of uh, looking this uh, this uh, uh, this uh, this homogeneity at birth, uh, we were studying with embryos at thirty days of gestation, and uh, that's where we were not able to find any difference uh, in terms of uh, this uh, this uh, homogeneity at 30 days of gestation or whatever the level or the source of selenium and that was a little disappointing but as I said maybe if we go up to uh, favoring these uh, selenium effects they may be uh, increased over time as we saw at 5 days of gestation a better development at 30 days of gestation a better development maybe at favoring this will be even potentialized but it has to be studied yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing that. Everybody's yeah, always interested in the long-term effects, right? So it's it's the problem we have. We all have. Every, you show it in the short term, and then everybody asks, "Well, what about in the future?" So, uh, so the second theme of your research has done the uh, the these these trace elements in uh, what was it the pre pre and post weaning metabolic development. Uh, so. You know, after obviously after uh, in in the piglets. So what? Um, maybe let's talk about that a bit. 
Sure. Uh, we've done some interesting uh, projects here uh, studying the bioavailability, uh, bioavailability of uh, some uh, trace elements. We've, we've uh, worked with uh, zinc, copper, iron, and selenium. And uh, for, for zinc and copper especially, we uh, were uh, looking at uh, levels and sources and also the ratio between zinc and copper, which is very important. And uh, the main finds that we had is that for zinc, uh, the source is, is an important aspect. So uh, organic zinc is more, uh, I, I don't know if I can say bioavailable because the approach that we have here is a very particular one. Uh, we don't work with uh, digestibility, for example. Uh, we work with an approach that we call uh, net portal appearance. Uh, what, it, what we do is that we perform surgeries here where we install a catheter in the portal vein, uh, just to refresh our memory in terms of anatomy, the portal vein is a, a single uh, vessel that drains all the blood coming from the gastrointestinal tract. So everything that is absorbed from the stomach until the, the rectum, basically, uh, will necessarily go through this, uh, this uh, portal vein. So that's why we cannulate this, this, this vessel. So we install this catheter at the very uh, entrance of the liver to be sure that we are uh, collecting as, as much uh, uh, blood as possible. We, would, we don't want to lose not even the blood coming from the stomach. We don't know if there is absorption of trace elements in the stomach, but we don't want to lose them if they exist. And we install a, a, a flow meter around the portal vein as well, very close to the scatter to measure the amount of blood uh, going through the vein per minute or per hour, uh, whatever. And then we install a second catheter in the carotid artery. Uh, it could be any artery because uh, based on some uh, tests that we've done here, uh, well, Venous blood will change uh, considering the organ that is uh, that is it's that it's, it's drain, but the uh, arterial blood is basically the same. Whatever uh, you 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 take samples in the organism, and the explanation is very easy. Well, when it goes into the heart, it's it's mixed, and uh, uh, so uh, there's no difference between between that. So we take the carotid artery because it's easy. Uh, it's uh, easy to access. And after the surgery, what we can do is to uh, take blood samples in both, ves both vessels at the same time. So we have the uh, portal blood and the uh, arterial blood. And by doing a, a simple subtraction be uh, between uh, uh, portal blood and arterial blood, we'll have the net uh, concentration of the nutrient we are studying. For example, uh, why we have this net concentration? Because if we think that all blood going to the portal vein comes from the intestinal tissue, for example. And the intestinal tissue, the input comes from diet, but also from the uh, systemic uh, blood that's nourishing these uh, cells. So in the portal vein, you have the mix between uh, nutrients coming from uh, uh, the, the diet after absorption uh, from the intestinal tissue and the intestinal tissue will release these nutrients in the portal vein, but also part of these nutrients coming from the systemic circulation. So you have to subtract what is coming from the systemic circulation to have an idea to, to better estimate what was really absorbed by the, the animal. But it's not uh, absorption itself because we have to consider that the intestinal tissue will use some of these nutrients. 
And that's the beauty of this technique because uh, we can we cannot estimate how much is used by the intestinal tissue, but we know how much is released from the intestinal tissue to be used, metabolized by the liver. So that's why, that's why I, I don't know if, it, if I can say it's bioavailable, but it's the, the net or the real uh, absorbed uh, or the real uh, uh, available uh, amount of nutrient that the animal will, will, uh, will have to use. So we've done that with the zinc, copper, and uh, as I said, for uh, organic zinc, it's, it has a better absorption or better uh, net uh, availability of, uh, of zinc. Uh, whatever the level we feed the, feed the animals, uh, if it's higher levels or lower levels, the organic source is always uh, better than the inorganic one. And uh, even within the uh, inorganic sources, uh, we have those that are more bioavailable uh, or more available. For example, uh, uh, zinc sulfate. It's not in the literature, but this technique was uh, precise enough to show that we have basically uh, twice uh, the availability of zinc coming from uh, uh, zinc sulfate compared to zinc oxide. And as much zinc we feed the animal, as lower is the proportion of proportion of this zinc that will be absorbed. And also we were able to show that zinc absorption happens 98% between the first hour after a meal. So uh, within one hour we have a very beautiful peak of zinc in the blood and then it goes to basically basal uh, levels. For copper, on the other hand, nothing happens. <laughs> there is no effect of uh, levels. There is no effect of uh, sources. There is no effect of feeding the animal. You feed the animal, and during the 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 the, the, the following ten hours, serum copper's level don't change. So it's, it's kind of weird because you feed a lot of copper to the animal. So you were expecting to have a peak of copper in the serum, but it doesn't happen. Uh, why? And, uh, well, uh, we have other experiments that we may talk about later that will explain that. But basically, uh, most of this copper is retained, is trapped in the intestinal tissue. But uh, we can try to explain it later. But what is uh, very interesting in this uh, uh, in this. Uh, um, projects in these experiments was that in the treatments where high levels of zinc and copper were added together, we had this combination of high zinc and high copper, this net availability of copper was actually negative. And what it, and what it means, a negative uh, availability, it means that not only dietary copper was not present in the portal vein, but maybe some of the systemic copper was also retained within the intestinal tissue. So the intestinal tissue was, uh, well, both using or trapping all copper that was going through it. And that gave us a, a negative value for this uh, availability. So uh, we were interested in understanding a little more what was happening with that. So we did some other uh, studies, more long-term studies, uh, evaluating uh, uh, not only at the uh, level of zinc and copper in different organs, for example, the intestinal tissue, the liver, the kidney, and also uh, the, the, the serum, blood serum, but we have also done, su done some uh, uh, PCRs to uh, better understand uh, 
what was happening in terms of uh, transporters. So zinc and copper transporters uh, in these uh, different uh, organs. And what we uh, found was uh, was an explanation for all that that we saw with the uh, bioavailability uh, studies. Uh, actually, when we uh, increased the amount of zinc and we studied three different amounts of zinc, 100, 1000 and 3000 uh, ppm of zinc, as much zinc-y, uh, zinc you feed the animal, as lower will be the expression of the uh, transporter responsible for uh, absorbing zinc from the intestinal lumen. So uh, this is a hemostatic mechanism where uh, the animal is trying to avoid absorption at the first at the first place. However, it's not it's not difficult to understand that it's not if the proportion of zinc is uh, reduced the uh, the proportion of absorbed zinc is reduced it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole amount or the total amount of zinc will be reduced as well. For example, uh, if we consider that animals receiving uh, 100 ppm of zinc uh, will have a 20% absorption of the zinc, we have uh, 20 uh, milligrams of zinc that will be absorbed. But if we take an animal uh, and feed them uh, 3000 ppm of zinc and we consider a 5% absorption, it's, it's still higher than the 20 milligrams of the one fed 100 ppm. So it's a first, uh, uh, it's a first step in the homeostatic uh, control of zinc, of, of uh, body zinc, but it's not efficient enough to really uh, avoid any kind of toxicity. So a second step is the release of zinc from the intestinal tissue to the portal circulation, for example. And uh, it's interesting because the, the transporter doing this job, it's more expressed when we increase the levels of zinc, meaning that the intestinal tissue is trying to avoid its own toxicity. So it, it reduces absorption, but it increases the release at the same time to reduce as much as possible its own levels of uh, intracellular zinc. Uh, as a consequence, in the uh, liver we have an increase in the absorption of zinc, the concentration of zinc in the liver, but also in the blood serum and in the kidney. So the animal, when we go from 100 to 1000 ppm, the, animals, the animal is able or efficient in regulating these zinc levels. But when we go from 1000 to 3000, this regulation is completely, completely, completely lost. The animal is not able to, 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 to handle uh, that much of, of zinc in its body. And uh, what is the effect on copper metabolism, for example? On copper metabolism, what has happened is that uh, zinc has no effect on the absorption of copper or apparently don't have any uh, effect on the absorption of copper itself. It doesn't uh, play any role in uh, in uh, increasing or reducing the expression of the gene responsible for this absorption of copper. Neither for the intracellular transport of copper, neither for the, the release of copper from the intestinal tissue. Neither in the liver and neither in the kidney, basically, or very low in the kidney. However, there is one single and very important intracellular metalloenzyme called ferritin, Oh, not ferritin, sorry, metallothionine that has a, a, a 
a very particular uh, uh, response to zinc. It increases uh, when you feed animals higher levels of zinc, so it's responsive, very responsive to zinc. However, it has a much greater affinity for copper, what, which means that when you feed high levels of zinc, you increase the synthesis of this metal enzyme, but it's going to bind a lot of copper, not zinc, copper. And what, what is the first tissue where copper will get in? Zinc and copper will get in after uh, ingestion in the diet. It's the intestinal tissue. So most of this dietary copper, and we can think on uh, about the systemic copper as well that is coming to the intestinal tissue to nourish the cells, most of this copper will be trapped, will be retained within the intestinal tissue and will not be released to reach the liver. And that's what we see in these studies. We have a very enriched uh, intestinal uh, uh, tissue with copper and liver levels decrease and decrease a lot. I would say that it decreases to levels uh, we, we see in piglets at birth. So uh, it's kind of a two to three fold decrease in uh, liver copper concentrations uh, when we feed 3000 ppm of uh, zinc to animals compared uh, to those uh, uh, feeding at 100 ppm of, of copper. But what, 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 what else? Uh, but how can I say that? One other uh, step in this metabolic control or this metabolic imbalance that zinc causes uh, on copper metabolism happens in the kidney because uh, in, in, in the kidney, this metallothionine, this enzyme uh, that is responsive to zinc will increase as well because the liver is enriched by zinc. So it increases the synthesis of metallothionine. But what is very uh, particular in the kidney uh, metabolism is that we have not only the uh, intake of a nutrient, whatever nutrient, but we have filtration and the reabsorption of this nutrient. So in the kidney, metallothionine will have twice the chances to bind copper as it had in other other uh, in uh, any other uh, organs. So the levels of copper in the kidney increases a lot as well. So we can see that in the intestinal tissue where, where we have absorption, we have high levels of copper. In the kidney tissue where we have reabsorption, we have a very high levels of uh, uh, copper. But in the serum and in the liver, that, that's where copper is needed uh, for, to, to, to be metabolized and to be uh, uh, transported to the other organs. We have very low levels of copper. So the conclusion of these uh, first studies were that uh, when we increased levels of zinc in the diet, we may create a copper deficiency in the uh, post-winning piglets, which is was at least not known uh, uh, before these these uh, studies. I mean, that's fascinating to me. It, it obviously has some pretty big implications for. Uh... Uh, those nursery diets, and especially when we're looking at zinc and copper uh, as, you know, non-amibiotic <laughs> pathogen control mechanisms, right? That What are the negative consequences that we're having on those pigs as a result of that? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and then after that, we were uh, interested in uh, evaluating the different ratios between uh, these two uh, elements. Uh, what happens if we in reduce zinc levels and we increase copper levels? Does copper has the same 
negative effects on zinc metabolism. So we started with this uh, that same approach with the portal vein, the surgeries and the portal vein approach. And uh, basically what we observed is that when we work with lower ratios between zinc and copper, uh, the metabolism or the absorption, the uh, net availability of both of them will be better. Uh, but once again, when we go from a lower level of zinc to a higher level of zinc, uh, in this uh, ratio, we keep the same, uh, even, even if we increase the levels of copper, uh, the increase of zinc will, uh, uh, how can I say that overcome this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, higher levels of copper and we will have a uh, negative values, uh, once again. So, uh, the, 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 the right way to, 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 to face this issue is not increasing copper levels, it's really decreasing zinc levels. But uh, a very uh, interesting result we got is that when you increase copper levels, you increase zinc absorption or zinc uh, availability. It may be related to the metallothionine enzyme, because if we think that uh, metallothionine will bind copper and uh, by biting copper, it will leave more zinc available, more uh, zinc, uh, more free zinc to be released by the, the, the intestinal tissue. So uh, we have this uh, this effect of uh, copper in improving the. Uh, we were expecting maybe to decrease to impair zinc uh, absorption or zinc availability, but by the at the end of the day, uh, the, uh, copper supplementation or higher levels of copper. Uh, in the diet will actually increase uh, zinc uh, uh, zinc absorption or zinc availability to the animal. And then with these results in hands, we performed a second study, a long-term study, uh, looking at those same uh, parameters that we uh, mentioned before, uh, levels of zinc and copper in different organs, gene expression in different organs. And, well, uh, by, with this approach uh, uh, of high and low levels of zinc, high high and low level and uh, sorry and low levels of copper, we were able to have better insights in terms of copper metabolism. In the first study, uh, where we variated only the levels of zinc, we were uh, more focused on zinc metabolism. We had a lot of information on copper metabolism, but our focus were, was a really zinc metabolism. But in the second one, uh, as we uh, changed a little bit the, the levels, we worked with uh, different levels of copper. We were able to look into, uh, into how copper metabolism uh, reacts uh, when you have uh, different levels of zinc, but also uh, if it can counteract uh, those high levels of zinc with higher levels of copper. And the answer is, once again, as in the uh, availability study, the answer is no. Whatever, if you have low or high levels of copper, uh, the negative effects of zinc will remain there and very significant. Of course, that we, when you have low levels of copper, these effects are even more significant. More, even uh, less the copper will reach the liver than uh, if you have more copper being fed to the animal. But even there, uh, you have a reduction in uh, uh, copper levels in the liver, and the animal can uh, become deficient at, at a given at a given moment. It, it's never as easy as it as you think it is. But I, I I love that that you know we start when you start looking into things, you, you see these kind of unexpected effects, right? So uh, I guess 
that's a good segue into your final theme, especially talking about zinc and copper, because you do a lot or have done work on um, uh, sustainability and you know limiting environmental impacts. So uh, I, I think this is something I you know I think it's been on people's minds, especially with zinc, and we know what's happening in the EU with their limits on zinc and that. So I, I guess we'll we'll our last topic will kind of be on on. On that side of it, right, sure. And that, if I if I can add, add just something that we you talked about, uh, you mentioned about environmental uh, impact. Of course, these uh, studies were not uh, focused on uh, the environmental impact of zinc and copper. Even if we were studying uh, pharmacological levels of zinc and copper, but if we think that uh, copper is trapped in the intestinal tissue. And the intestinal tissue, the turnover of, intest of uh, intestinal cells is uh, 25% per day. Within four days, you have 100% uh, renewal in your intestinal cells. All this copper that is trapped in the intestinal tissue will be lost and you will find it in the manure. So even if it's a nutritional study without any look at the, the, the uh, environmental aspect, you can uh, have some. Uh, you can keep in mind that uh, you are losing a lot of zinc. You are losing a lot of copper by doing this kind of uh, supplementation. Of course, I'm talking about nutrition. I'm not talking about uh, control of diarrhea, for example. We know that high levels of zinc oxide they 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 are efficient uh, in these aspects, but nutritionally speaking, uh, it's not that interesting. <laughs> and even for animal, and even for animals' health, because uh, we can uh, create uh, copper deficiencies. And I did a talk about uh, about iron, because uh, we we evaluated iron metabolism as well in these studies. And uh, although the effect of zinc, of high levels of zinc, are not uh, that intense as we observed in uh, copper metabolism, we we do have uh, uh, effects on uh, iron metabolism as well. And these effects uh, goes in the same uh, direction as we, uh, as we observed for copper. So when you increase the levels of uh, zinc, you increase the levels of uh, a very particular enzyme in the, uh, in the cells called ferritin. And this ferritin will bind uh, iron. So uh, it's basically the same approach. You increase zinc, you increase ferritin, you bind iron, Iron. you will trap iron in the intestinal tissue. You don't have enough iron reaching the liver. But it's not that bad as it's for copper. So for, for iron, what I could say is that uh, high levels of zinc in the diet will not create a deficiency of iron, will not create uh, or, uh, or uh, stimulate the development of anemia, but it will uh, it will uh, decrease the capacity of the animal to build up re iron reserves at the long term. I, I think it's fascinating. I'm glad that you're over there doing this work. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's out of my wheelhouse, but I'm glad somebody's working on it and looking at these things. And I think this is great. Um, we are running a little bit short on telling. So uh, before we get to our, our final three questions that we asked everybody, I like to, you know, provide you the opportunity, like what's, one one take home message or or something that you that you hope that the listeners of, of this episode will, will will get. Yeah, well, uh, for sure that uh, in terms of well, if if I can if I pick this uh, the, this main team that uh, I tried to, to to bring here that is zinc and copper, uh, 
we know that uh, in the in the, in Europe we already have some uh, restrictions in terms of uh, zinc supplementation. Pharmacological levels of zinc a bit is coming to Canada. Uh, I don't think it's uh, it's gonna take uh, that much of time uh, be- before we are not able or not not allowed to use these kinds of, uh, of strategies uh, in our herds here. So uh, we 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 still don't have, uh, and maybe we won't have that silver bullet to to replace uh, zinc oxide. Uh, so uh, of course, a more holistic approach is needed. But to think on a holistic approach, uh, we do have to understand what is happening with uh, trace elements. Uh, here I'm studying uh, zinc, copper, iron, selenium. Uh, but what is happening with vitamins? Uh, we know that uh, zinc may interfere with the metabolism of other uh, metals, but copper can do the same. Uh, met- uh, manganese can do the same. So uh, w- we need... Uh, I don't like to say urgently, but it's kind of. <laughs> we need uh, more uh, research. We need more uh, understanding of these metabolic aspects. We cannot uh, look at only on growth performance. Of course, uh, in terms of uh, money in the pocket of producer, it, uh, growth performance is important. Uh, it's 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 imperative for the industry. But to keep having good growth performance we have to look at more basic stuff as well, okay? So we have to, to go deeper in the metabolism. We have to go deeper in the physiology because by understanding that, we'll be able to have better products, products that will be more focused on a, a particular uh, a, a, a problem or a particular issue. So for zinc and copper, uh, we can work with uh, lower levels. Yes, we can work with lower levels. We ha- we, we need uh, this holistic approach. Of course, we have to work on uh, the sanitary conditions of pigs, the environmental conditions of pigs, uh, welfare conditions of pigs, nutritional conditions of pigs. But uh, we have to know the basics. So we still don't know what are the real requirements of uh, trace elements uh, in pigs, trace minerals and vitamins. All our or most of our uh, work that we see in uh, the official recommendation tables, uh, they are they're quite of uh, old. Uh, they 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 were done in nine, the nineteen eighties and sometimes even before. So uh, we have to, to to have a much better better understanding of these aspects if we want to have more robust piglets, uh, piglets that will not uh, get sick that often or that easy. Uh, and if they get sick they can recover uh, faster and better. Yeah. I mean, we, we said that right at the beginning, right? That they're, they're old and they're also based on growth. And I think that's per, one of the things when it comes to a lot of the nutrition research not moving forward is that we have to focus on more than just the growth if we really want to solve this problem and really ha- and, and find that, you know, that solution to reducing antibiotics and, and making a more robust pig. So I, I, I completely agree. It's time for our famous three. So we, we end each podcast with three questions that we ask everybody that are kind of beyond the research thing, but uh, potentially of interest to the to our viewers so the, or listeners, I guess. Uh, the first is, what is your favorite swine-related book or resource? My God, my... It's interesting because I'm a nutritionist. 
but the one I like the most is the one I have in here. It's called uh, Disease of Swine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really passionate about uh, passionate about uh, pathology and uh, dream. Well, I'm a veterinarian, so uh, I think it's a natural thing. <laughs> And I, I tried to, to bring a little bit of this uh, veterinarian uh, expertise in my in my work as a nutritionist. So uh, that's where I try to, 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 to do some experiments with the challenges, uh, if it means something to you. <laughs> I, I think that's good. If every nutritionist came out here and said NRC, it would get really boring uh, pretty quickly. So it's, it's nice to hear uh, different resources. Uh, so our second question is then, what is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? And this could be, you know, fiction, nonfiction, any, anything. Something that you're reading now or have read? Well, uh, what I'm reading now, well, I'm I'm not a, a very a very uh, enthusiastic reader, to, to tell you the truth. <laughs> uh, what I do when I'm not uh, working and taking care of my two kids uh, that... Uh, consume a lot of my time <laughs> but i really like to 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 work with uh, flowers so uh i go from animals to plants and uh, that's what i i try to to relax a little bit <laughs> <laughs> yep that, that works too as long as there's something <laughs> well of course here in canada it's a little restrict restricted i cannot uh, work on that like uh 12, uh, 12 months of the year, as I did back in Brazil. It's here we have uh, less time to, to work on the soil, but it's okay. a little bit shorter. <laughs> yeah, a little bit shorter. Yeah. So, um, and so our our final question is: in, in your opinion, and you can set you you can just uh, define success however you want for this question. Uh, what sets successful swine professionals apart from those who are not? Well, that's. I would say that a successful uh, swine professional is someone that uh, may have some kind of expertise in a particular field of of, of the product of a production or whatever. If it's nutrition and uh, nutrition, health, uh, welfare, uh, animal welfare, but it's someone that uh, have a more general uh, knowledge of the system as a whole. Uh, because sometimes we get so specialized in uh, gestating cells, in lactation cells, in uh, possibly piglets, but we have to, to to keep in mind that it's a system that goes from uh, even before birth, uh, from 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 the 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 uh, the, the, uh, the cells in the reproduction uh, herds uh, to slaughter, and even after slaughter with the the the. Uh, the assurance of the quality of the, the final product. So we have to keep in mind that it's a, a, a whole food system. It's a whole production system uh, that we have to, 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 to understand. We don't have to be a specialist in the whole thing, but we have to understand the whole thing. And by doing so, you will be able to work better in your uh, specific field. You can do very good stuff working on uh, salsa production. If you keep in mind that those piglets born from that cell will be a meat at a given time. So uh, you have to, to think about it. Yeah, I agree. I think it's something that we, we tend to all be uh, guilty of at some point, right? Where we get so focused on what we like to do and what we do. But yeah, understanding where you fit in that big picture, I, I, I would agree that, that it's uh, uh, a great thought. Uh, well, I think that's 
bring us to the end uh, of, of our podcast. So uh, I'll thank everybody for listening. And obviously, thank you uh, for coming on and, and talking about your work. I think it's great. And looking forward to seeing what, what comes out. Maybe have you on in the future for some new stuff. Well, sure. And uh, as I said, it's my pleasure to be here. And uh, I'll be glad I'll be glad to, to, to be here once again if you invite me. So uh, thank you. I'm sure we'll have you on in the future. Have a good yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you.